Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to reply, guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willett. And I'm Julia Clare. And uh, yeah, we're, you know, we're broadcasting from hell, I guess. <laughs> <So>. yes. <laughs> I would I would say as always, but I, I don't know, this past week, I can't believe it's been, I can't believe the week that has transpired since the last time we recorded, which was exactly a week ago. Yeah. Um, of course, we're talking about the, um, the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, um, in which 19 children and two teachers and two teachers were killed um elementary school children 10 and 11 years old um and as we've learned more about what happened um it's pretty clear that the local law enforcement didn't basically were standing outside of the building and they didn't enter for a full 40 minutes and um the basically they didn't enter the building until a federal until federal agents came um and i just don't know what to do i just don't i mean the uh, <laughs> The Senate has, uh, has, you know, they adjourned for their Memorial Day recess, you know, doing so much hard work over in the, the Senate. Um, and I just, it just all feel, of course, it just feels very dark um, because it, you know, because so many children are dead. And I think the stories of the kids who survived is honestly like it's it's maybe even even worse there was you know there was a story of this uh 11 year old girl who was in that classroom who escaped being shot by smearing her friend's blood on herself and playing dead oh my god and I just, and now Republicans are like making this about, oh, there should only be one point of entry per school. And then you know, we need to, we need to uh, arm the teachers. That's arm, an which, ever popular suggestion. Which they don't actually, I, I just, they don't actually believe either of those things. They don't actually, they just are they just are so deeply entrenched in gun culture and uh, like gun hysteria in this country that they will do anything other than address the most obvious problem, which is that there are more guns than people in this fucking country. I mean, so not to be a doomer, but I mean... I don't even know how you could change that at that point, at this point, like, obviously there is so many, I mean, there's so many like 
very common sense things that you could do, like just preventing anybody who has a history of domestic or abuse or stalking. They've learned that that's an amazing, good predictor for like mm-hmm. who will, you know, do violent acts. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's like, it's not like we, I mean, th- there's no way to do like a federal buyback program with guns at this point that won't result in, I mean, that would work, I guess, for a variety of reasons. So I, I, I really don't know. Yeah. I mean, the thing about it is that, and you know, you're probably right in that nothing will change and but we haven't even tried. Like, yeah, I agree. That, like that's the effort. thing. It's yeah. like we haven't even tried the simplest, most you know, common sense, universal background checks. Like Governor Abbott of Texas, who is uh, there is no hell hot enough for him, I as agree. far as I'm concerned you know, got on TV after this fucking shooting happened and was like, this is incomprehensible. Meanwhile, last year, he lowered the age of someone to be able to buy a gun without a permit to 18. And that's how old the shooter was. And again, without a permit, you cannot get, you cannot drive a car without a permit. I know that I'm like preaching to the converted here on this show, but like, it is so mind-boggling that we continually allow this to happen because people have this, you know, hyper-masculine emotional attachment to guns. And that's what it is. It's emotion. It's emotion because there is no logic to it. Every We can throw every statistic at the book at the, in, in the book at these people. And it doesn't make a difference because gun culture is emotionality at its core. Even, you know, again, every statistic say, says that a big predictor of whether or not there will be a fatal shooting within your own home, someone will be killed accidentally or on purpose within your home, is if there is a gun in your home. Yeah. A, yeah. It's a big predictor. It's, you know, if you have a gun in your home, the risk of suicide by a firearm triples. I don't know. I I mean, it just feels it feels insane. It is insane. I mean, it's just it's completely, completely nuts. Um, I think that, you know, it's like. To me, it feels really obvious that in order to solve this like issue, like we, we have to, to fundamentally create a different society. Like we can't, I mean, like, it's just not in a healthy society. Even people who have guns don't want to murder their neighbor. Not saying that we shouldn't do common sense gun control. We should absolutely do that. I mean, but you know, there's just a very deep rot in a society that has like so little regard for other, for human beings and for Mm -hmm. human life. And like, I don't, you know, people talk a lot about mental illness whenever this happens and, you know, it's like, 
Well, they don't fucking want to do anything about that either. Yeah, we have a I, I, I just we, we have a, a collective mental illness. And, you know, it's, it's where we can just, you know, let a million people die of COVID like no problem. And, mm-hmm. you know, we can just, you know, pretend that uh, that it didn't happen, basically. And, you know, I mean, we're just I mean, there's just so, so, so little regard for human life in this culture. And, you know, we definitely saw that playing out without you know with people like not getting vaccinated and stuff and i'm not comparing people who are unvaccinated to the shooter but i just mean like it's we we would have to i think to to solve this depravity like you know have a society that doesn't uh just have you know sickness just running through it so deeply well it's i mean it's this myopia that comes from you know decades of messaging that leads to us to this like hyper hyper individualism that we have in this country and that's fundamentally where all of this stems from it's like my preferences should be should supersede that of the common good yeah and i just i i think that that's that's where that's where gun culture comes from and that's where the complete lack of regard that people who don't get vaccinated come from and like again i mean it was being pointed out but how many parents were in school board meetings yelling that like making kids wear masks was masks was abuse but they won't do they won't support the simplest measures to ensure that their children don't get fucking murdered in school it's insane it's you know i think that like to your point about individualism you know i mean like all the way back to marx you know, there's this idea of the base, which is the economic system, capitalism. And then there is the uh, superstructure, which is like, you know, all the cultural stuff on top of that, you know, religion, media. And, you know, there's a lot of capitalist societies uh, in the world. But I think that the United States has just, you know, been particularly effective at this messaging um, just day in and day out that, you know, freedom amounts to complete individuality. And there's many ways about of thinking about freedom, you know, freedom from violence, freedom from hunger. You know, we are not, uh, <laughs> we think about freedom in an extremely limited way. And I think, you know, like, I mean, freedom from being shot in your school or yeah. your place of worship or at your grocery store. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, and it's like, you know, every single cultural institution that we have just continues to to reinforce that. And really the only path we have to, you know, get out of this is, you know, an organized working class. It's not possible to uh, defeat these you know, I mean, like 
obviously like the shooter, both shooters recently, you know, and, and the shooters every day that the every day, like, obviously there's, you know, something really wrong with those people, whether it's mental illness or just being a, a really bad person, you know, but like this, the promotion of this ideology that, you know, it's that even like the slightest concern for humanity is somehow, you know, like an, an encroachment on, on personal freedom. Um, I mean, and, you know, like Congress going on a, a vacation right now, instead of doing something and like the chokehold that the NRA has, you know, these are all things to be expected from our capitalist ruling class. This is part of capitalism, but I think what is unique about the United States more so than really any other country is that there there's just no no sense of how to you know push back on it like you see in europe like people strike all the time like even the conservatives in can in canada and um in the uk accept as a basic premise that you know of course people should have a right to go to the doctor and here there's just really no bottom like people are no, just not I'm not saying that, you know, Canada or the UK or whatever is, I mean, th those are neoliberal hellscapes too, but it's just like, it's, I mean, the, I think, you know, when it comes to like organizing people here, I mean, there, there is just such a, a block with that like individualist mentality. Uh, and I don't really know. I, I do think that, you know, I mean, I wonder if there's a point where people will transcend that, but I, I don't necessarily think that that will naturally happen. I think that that is like has to be, you know, an, a very organized effort. No, I, I certainly don't think that it will naturally happen. I think it has to kind of come from all sides. And I think there is a lot of pressure from the bottom uh you know structurally the bottom of this country the the you and me's of the world yeah um i think a huge problem that i'm sure you would agree with is our electeds even and perhaps most most glaringly in the democratic party um you know i'm I'm very happy that AOC went on twitter and dragged the hell out of uh, the the Democratic Party leaders who campaigned for uh, Jessica Cisneros opponent um, Henry Cuellar Henry yeah is it it's Cuellar I think okay. it's Cuellar yeah Cuellar Henry Cuellar um, who is both anti-choice and um, not tough NRA, on guns he's NRA backed he's, he's an A rating from the NRA and takes a lot I mean, of campaign money from them. That is to say that that's inexcusable is a fucking understatement. I am, I am, I don't think I've been this upset since the episode that we did on trans kids in Texas. Which the rest of this episode is going to be about as well. So Great. sorry about that, listeners. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I, again, this is like only the second time that I've like, gotten this emotional on but i'm just so tired uh, like i'm so tired of death i think we all are i think we just have this like 
death fatigue in this country. And it's crazy that Newtown was 10 years ago. I was thinking about, you know, a lot of us were thinking about Newtown. And I feel like people care even less about these kids because they're not white. It's disgusting. And it's absolutely disgusting. I'm just so t- like, and that's why I don't even like, I don't even give a shit if people think that like what Beto did was a stunt because we need to see people, people need to see someone in a position of power who's angry and who's like fighting. I, I and also I everything is a stunt. Everything is political theater. That's what, what do you think this whole, like there's too many doors thing is that's fucking political theater. I mean, like, I, yeah, I, I, it, it, I agree. I, it would be, you know, what I want to happen, and what I'm sure any decent person of consciousness, of a conscience, you know, wants to to happen is some things that are not theater, some things that actually uh, change something. I mean, it's heartbreaking. It's like, I mean, so you know. I feel like I just have like a constant stomach ache now and it feels really bad. And like the only thing that kind of, I think that the, the thought to, to hold on to, if you're, I mean, there's, there's a couple ways to stay sane right now, I think. And one is to, you know, completely tune stuff out and, you know, do not recommend, I definitely recommend like logging off, taking care of yourself. You know, you can't do anything if you're like completely fried out and I get myself there emotionally all the time. But I think that the the second thing to remember is like, you know, there is very deliberately a sense of powerlessness that the ruling class of this country tries to induce. And that along with, you know, the uh, individualistic mentality, like they want us to feel like it is impossible um, for, you know, our, our leaders to answer to us. And it's, it is, it feels impossible. Um, and it's, you know, to do something different and, you know, and it's also not likely that something different will happen. Like the most likely outcome is that it will keep getting worse and worse. I mean, I'm not under any illusion about that, but you know, it's like, it is possible that people could organize, you know, that sectors of the economy could strike. It is possible that, you know, with a, a teacher's, a mass teacher strike, things could change. It is possible that, you know, if even the flight attendants union were striking. So like the more organized people are right now, which is starting to happen, um, you know, in the labor movement in this country. And, you know, the more people sort of begin to see that the only solution here is in collective action and solidarity and very likely withholding our labor at this point, you know, Things, I mean, it is possible to change things that way. And the thing that is, you know, I'm not, I'm not denying the very real obstacles um, to things like strikes, you know, but it's, I mean, you know, they've, they've got the power, they've got the, the guns, most of them anyway, but, you know, we do have the numbers. And I think that, you know, like people have just been so trained to feel completely hopeless. And, you know, it's just, I think it's just good to remember that, like, even 
if you look at it objectively, like there is something that we could do. There is, it's hard and none of us can do it alone. In fact, it has to be, you know, a ton of people, you know, working collectively, but you know, it's, I, I don't know, it could get to that point. And there could be leaders who emerge that, you know, guide that process along. I think that like a, a big thing that feels so heartbreaking right now is that like, you know, the left is just so utterly leaderless, you know, I, I mean, uh, but I, I don't necessarily know if, if it will stay that way. I mean, there, there have been people in this country that, you know, put forward ideas that really could have healed the rot at the heart of our sick society, Martin Luther King Jr., Fred Hampton, you know, and then those people were killed. So, you know, I think, you know, as leaders begin to emerge, we got to protect them like the Cubans protected Castro from many, many, many assassination attempts. And I mean, it's just like, you know, most likely it's going to get worse, but it it's also not a hundred percent certain that it will, because th there is a path, it, whether people will take it or not. I don't know. You know, I, yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I just, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm also incredibly frustrated with I mean, we're always very frustrated with Dem leadership in, yeah. this, in this country. Like the the leadership structure in the Democratic Party is uh, perpetuates the rot. Yeah. Um, even you know, Chuck Schumer, who actually was, you know, doing doing a little better than uh, than some of of the the typical leaders um, after say the. Um, you know, the whole, the protests outside of, of Kavanaugh's house and responding to that. Um, when he was talking about, he was, he was asked about that, the doors question, are there too many doors in schools? If, and then he was like, uh, no. And I think that we should debate that. Like, let's oh debate. And I was like, why are you why are you responding as if this is a good faith argument? Because it's I mean, not it's also like, are you, what are you going to have no windows? I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, look, they're not going to rebuild all the schools. Let's say, OK, that's a good idea. It's not a serious it's not a serious. That's they the thing. It's like, install, like we know ventilation helps I know. with COVID transmission a lot. And they haven't done that, you know, so it's just, again, they don't they don't this is these are not actual suggestions. They're just trying to change the conversation in any yeah. way that they can. And so I just, the fact that we are in kind of like a leaderless place because, you know, the house majority leader and the senate majority leader will not do what is what is necessary and president biden doesn't seem like he's doing what is necessary um completely feckless yeah i think that's why i honestly like i know that i think there's a lot of reason to be skeptical of uh, sure of someone like beto whatever but he is running for governor against greg abbott yeah and 
I if there is one issue he's been pretty consistent on, it's this. Beto, I think, is absolutely not going to win, but it would be great if someone defeated Abbott. He's one of them. Abbott is one of the most evil people in the entire country. What I will say about. Yeah, he and Ron DeSantis can fucking go to hell a million times over. I was talking to my dad on the phone about this. And I my dad doesn't swear a lot. I've never I just like I I said, did you did you see on the news about how the police and then he cut me off and he was like he was like yeah absolutely disgusting fucking 40 minutes he was like like every one of those should be under federal every one of those uh departments should be under federal investigation i've like i just i think my dad is getting like radicalized against the police (laughs) yeah i mean the thing is is like to your dad's point about federal investigation yeah you know in a just society certainly but here's the thing that completely blew my mind when i learned it which is that the police have no legal obligation to protect human Mm -hmm. beings so Mm -hmm. you know for listeners who may not have heard of this case there was a uh, supreme court case um called castle rock versus gonzalez um and it was decided in 2005 and uh so there was a woman named jessica gonzalez she had a restraining order against her uh against her ex-husband i'm not sure if they were legally divorced or not but um the restraining order prohibited the husband from seeing gonzalez uh, or her three daughters and then a month later dude abducted the children uh gonzalez uh, asked the police to to search for and arrest her husband, um, but they didn't do anything. Um, and the husband murdered all the children. Um, and so, you know, she uh, sued the local government for its failure to in- enforce the restraining order. Um, a court of appeals uh, found that she had a legitimate due process claim. But then when it went all the way up to the Supreme Court in a 7-2 decision, Uh, with the majority opinion written by Scalia, the court ruled that Gonzalez had no constitutionally protected property interest. And this is the important word because uh, basically the court ruled that um, in order to have a property interest um, that would would be, you know, reason for the enforcement of a restraining order, um, you know, there would have to be Uh, property involved and you know since the kids are not property it's uh they don't have to do anything so i mean the police did not break the law by not going into the school they didn't and even if it's even if like a you know local municipality passed a law that said okay police are obligated to protect people from violence that law would be unconstitutional so and this is why yeah and this is why I increasingly over the past 10 years have more and more just been like burn the constitution to the fucking ground because and they're doing we, it in Latin America. Yeah, yeah, because and what we've seen in this most recent right-wing reactionary 
Supreme Court makeup that we currently have is that the constitutional originalists are winning and constitutional originalism is at its core a conservative reactionary movement because it's the basically was written by fucking slave owners Lord exactly slavery of course it's going to be bad there were there are three instances in the constitution um three specific clauses protecting slavery in the constitution who gives a shit if something wasn't originally in the constitution yeah i mean i think even like a lot of you know left or liberals are uh, i think you know kind of accept the the constitution as sort of a given maybe not maybe not people you know that are pretty left but i mean you know we could have a new constitution we could throw this one in the garbage and do something else i mean none of this is ever going to happen unless there is a fundamental shift in the balance of power in this country which you know may be possible um, by people organizing and withholding their labor because the economy certainly cannot go without the working class and it and it may come down to violence i'm not advocating violence i just I'm, yeah, I just want to say, please do not go out and do violence. Absolutely not endorsing that. But, you know, like it's uh, you can only push people so far before that naturally erupts and people do, you know, take revolutionary action. It's not like I, I don't I don't know. It's hard to imagine that um, things continue on this trajectory of like people not even being able to afford housing or food or you know shortages of baby formula mass shootings you can't even send your kids to fucking school without worrying that they're going to be murdered there i mean there's obviously people can be pushed very 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 far um largely due to you know like the fucking never-ending brainwashing that um individualism and capitalism rule the day you know but uh and that you know any sort of like socialism or communism is is like automatically going to be more authoritarian but i mean you can only push people so far like there will be a moment where it cracks you know yeah i just like i continue to i mean so so much of this is because we are we live under the chokehold of a 250 year old document i i mean yes i totally agree with you and i think definitely throw the fucking constitution in the garbage but i mean like the way that if it you know if there was a different constitution if there was a constitution that said all great things right now um, the ruling class would still use it to yeah. divide people and to, you know, make sure that, you know, all wealth is continually transferred up and that, you know, a very tiny number of people consolidate power. Like that's the natural, that's the natural progression of capitalism. So, you know, yeah, let's definitely make a new constitution, but it's just like nothing, nothing good can happen unless people are organized to, you know, actually shift the balance of power fundamentally. Yeah. They're horrible people. I mean, it's just, and capitalism has become so, like we were living in the time where it's just become fucking absolutely psychopathic, you know? It's just, 
and all these cultural issues as well like so the the yankees new york yankees twitter account is tweeting all of these statistics about guns today and i'm seeing i was seeing so many of the replies of like angry people being like this wokeness is bullshit like calling it wokeness and what Rand paul said that public schools are are not teaching kids values they're teaching kids wokeness and we're we've come to the point where teaching history factually accurately where just sharing statistics is seen as wokeness and like that is the scariest shit i've ever heard yeah i mean conservatives are so anti-free speech they are you know banning people from you know talking about i mean having age-appropriate discussions about just like who their family is and um you know like the don't say gay shit they're banning books um you know it's just they're banning protests um they're you know disenfranchising people i mean like the, the conservative movement is somehow pro free speech is just one of the most mind-bending lies that you could possibly ever come up with and it's just it's massively stupid i mean or that they're even pro-life no of course not <laughs> i mean that point gets made you yeah. know daily daily uh, but understandable it, but it's it's fucking the, the pro-life death cult you know what yeah. the fuck it's just not it's horrible i mean it's just uh, it's it's bad it's really bad and i think you know i don't know i mean it's like i don't i'm not trying to be like pollyannish about this whatsoever but you know if you do want to look for like a sliver of potential right now i definitely see a lot of like kind of mainstream liberals sort of starting to realize like that you know voting is wholly insufficient to solve mm -hmm. the problems at hand. I'm not saying don't do it, definitely do it. It's like the, keep the death cult out of office, you know, wherever possible. They're extremely dangerous people, but I mean, it's just like voting alone, especially when so many people have been disenfranchised is just not gonna solve this. And I think that a lot of people are starting to kind of realize that, oh, this isn't a, law in the system that these things keep happening like this is actually is the system yeah. that we live in so, uh, you know, feature, these feature not a bug exactly and i don't know i mean it just gives me a stomach ache all day i'm trying to i was just like lying on the floor crying about the shooting and then like i mean just feeling so fucking broken and i kept getting texts about uh people on twitter who were doing podcast beeps which was funny but then I just, I gave up and I bought, I bought a ticket to the woods. I'm like, Oh, you did? Yeah. I'm going go to go for you. I'm going to go to California where they've never heard of a podcast and right. I'm going to turn off my phone and not right. look at it. And so, you know, I guess, you know, larger point, it's like, I, you know, I mean, the show is called reply guys, obviously we're fans of the, the internet to, to one extent or another or addicts or whatever. And probably a lot of people who listen to the show are, you know, really well-informed, but it's like, you can become so emotionally drained where it is just impossible to take action because your nervous system is just in such a state mm -hmm. of frozenness from all the trauma. And, you know, 
I think it's really important if you can to, to kind of take care of yourself, even if that means that at times you have to moderate your news consumption. Um, it's, you know, I, and I think trying to do concrete things in real life, like I'm in the next couple of weeks here, I'm attending a, a first aid tourniquet training. Like one thing that people can do is to know how to use a tourniquet and carry a tourniquet, um, you know, so that if someone is shot, you know, on a limb that you can use the tourniquet to, to save their life. And, you know, there are things that like, even in, you know, however horrible this is that, you know, can, um, can ameliorate the suffering in some really powerful and important ways. Like I know someone who's, you know, volunteering with the Trevor project and is, you know, talking to trans children who are suicidal on the phone and on text and, you know, just even being able to, you know, to just help those children feel like, okay, there is like, there are people in the world who are mad that this is happening and you do have a future in an adulthood where you, you might have the opportunity to be around people that support you. And so, you know, just, just remembering that, you know, as bad as it is taking action in real life, or especially where you get the opportunity to connect with other people who care, that can be a, a pretty good antidote to the emotional feeling of absolute powerlessness to like be able to see yourself make some kind of difference, even if it's just for one person, mm -hmm. you know, that person is, you know, an, an important person. And, you know, if we can do these things like, you know, get involved in mutual aid and, you know, being a street medic, whatever it is, you know, and there's another organization in Brooklyn called Brooklyn Eviction Defense. And when, mm -hmm. you know, the police are trying to evict somebody, they go uh, sit in front of that person's door and block the fucking police from coming in. And then they've, you know, prevented people from getting evicted. So, you know, there is, you know, while we continue to push for, uh, a fundamental redistribution of power in this country. There, there is, there is stuff that we can be doing in the meantime that makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I think that's, that's all I have to say this week. It's a fucking awful week. And you know, the rest of this episode, I wish I could tell you it was going to be a little more cheerful, but um, it's not, not cheerful, but it is good and important and, and interesting. I think I, I talked to Alejandra Caraballo, um, who is uh, a lawyer and she works at Harvard Law School and um, is a, uh, I feel like a Republican saying these words, but a trans activist. <laughs> <laughs> really is a trans activist. <laughs> and, uh, woke trans activist. She, she truly is a woke trans activist. Yes. <laughs> but also, uh, you know, a, a really great, um, just a really, really great source of information. And, you know, it has just been following so many of uh, the, the legal implications of all these legislation and, you know, has a lot of thoughts on, you know, what people can be doing. And, you know, I, I really enjoy her, her Twitter presence and, you know, she's just great. So I, I think although the topic is tough that you will still enjoy listening to this interview. All right. Thanks. Thanks a lot, everybody.
Uh, we'll see you next week. See you next week. Hello and welcome back to Reply, guys. I am so excited this week to be joined by someone I've been a fan of on the internet for a long time. Uh, she is a professor at Harvard Law School and is also an activist. Please welcome to the show Alejandra Carabaya. Welcome. Thanks, Kate. Um, I'll just make a quick correction. It's clinical instructor, but if others want to call me professor, oh, okay. I won't stop them. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm going to call you a professor. You're a professor of this podcast. Basically, anyone who knows stuff is a professor. So, <laughs> um, okay, so um, you have been following this, like, this, um, I don't even know what to call it, like a slew of really uh, terrible legislation um, against trans people, you know, in, in Texas and, you know, really in many states. And I was wondering if we could start with like a quick update of what are some of the things that are, are going on right now? Yeah, I think this year has really just been absolutely one of the worst years for trans rights uh, across the country. I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Just such a concerted effort to erase, particularly around trans kids, uh, to basically make schools an unsafe place for them to ban their care to ban them from sports even we've now even had a retread of north carolina with them re resurrecting bathroom bans so this has just been an unprecedented attack and now it's 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 spreading right so before it was you know it was just general attacks on trans people and a lot of the lgbtq movement orgs weren't doing or I guess I want to say the orcs, I will say like a lot of the, the more prominent cis, white, uh, gays and lesbians really didn't take it as seriously because it didn't affect them. And now it's really starting to affect them. And I think it's what we saw with Don't Say Gay in Florida, which was really targeted at trans kids. It wasn't really as targeted at, at um, LGB folks. Uh, but, you know, just to give a broad overview of what's happening in Florida, we had the Don't Say Gay Law, which banned classroom discussion of sexual orientation, gender identity. Alabama, we saw a felony gender-affirming care ban, which would charge providing gender-affirming care to anyone under the age of 19, which includes 18-year-olds that are adults. It would charge, they would be liable with a, a felony up to 10 years in prison for gender-affirming care. This best practices, right? Uh, we saw a, a, a Basically, the state of Texas turned its entire child protective services as a weapon to target the families of trans kids. And it's awful. Yeah, it's dystopian. I've never seen anything like it. Um, additionally, we've seen now, I think in the last two years, about 17 states ban trans kids from sports. Oftentimes, like in Utah, where there was literally a single trans femme athlete in the entire state. I mean, it's about as close to a bill of attainder as you can get. Uh, and so really it's just, it, it's just been just a tsunami of anti-trans reactionary bills. Uh, yesterday there was actually a hearing in Ohio to ban gender affirming care in Ohio. And, and Arkansas was the first state to do it and they did it last year and it's been enjoined by the courts. Thankfully the one in Alabama has now been enjoined by the courts. Uh, but we're seeing more and more states push it through. And, and the more states that do this at different parts of the country, the more likely that maybe a court won't enjoin it and 
they want to force this issue to the Supreme Court. They really want to undermine trans rights uh, in the law um, and basically provide no, no protection to trans people in the law. In some of these states, um, if I'm understanding this correctly, are not only banning gender-affirming medical care, but even going so far as to ban, like, a trans child dressing how they want to dress. Like, they're legally mandating that uh, people dress and express themselves in a way that uh, conforms, you know, to their biological sex, which is, I mean, I think it's incredibly fucked up that the law, I mean, it's all fucked up, but to me, it's like, it's, it just seems like there's, um, you know, sort of so much enforcement of gender norms going on with this, you know, Christo fascist movement in the U S and, and that, that really feels like connected in a lot of ways to, you know, this movement to, uh, you know, forced birth and just all this stuff to kind of get people back to the whatever idealized fake version of the 1950s. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is. It's when you really look at, at, you know, who's behind this, it's, it's mostly a reactionary right wing uh, movement really rooted in, in this kind of Christo fascist, like movement, uh, Alliance Defending Freedom has basically been at the forefront of pushing these laws. And what you were mentioning about even gender expression, right? So in Florida, it's non-binding, and it was just a, a medical letter by the state surgeon general who basically said that even social transition should be discouraged, which like social transition is literally just changing your name, pronouns, and wearing different clothes. Like, like that's it, right? Yeah. So like, that that's like setting the stage to like trans people, like targeting trans people is basically setting the stage to enforce rigid gender norms, where it, any gender non-conforming behavior is seen as queer or trans, and that needs to be stopped because it's, you know, for reasons like they, because they just they hate that we exist, and they hate that we transgress not to make a pun gender norms and so that that's really what it's about and it's like one of the tells right is like one of the biggest kind of canards that have been cycled by a lot of the anti-trans folks is that there's this huge number of kids that desist and don't end up becoming trans and this is based off of like basically like studies from with data from like kids in the 70s and 80s when they didn't have a a a lockdown definition of gender dysphoria or anything like that and additionally a lot of kids that were just gay were labeled as like having gender identity disorder which is what the original uh classification was and so they 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 pushed this like desistance myth that like oh 90 percent of kids desist if you just let them uh you know put them in conversion therapy or like all this stuff well, there was just this new study that showed that actually like 97.5% of kids persist in their gender identity if they start at a young age. And so then they start attacking it, saying that like, oh, no, you're actually just making them trans. And so like basically any it, it starts with the idea that being trans is a bad thing and they will do anything to eradicate us. I, I mean, to me, you know, something like 
it, like I think in Utah, you were saying there's this. They were trying to they were trying to create a piece, or they did create a piece of legislation to, you know, in reality, kick one child off their sports team. And I think if I remember correctly, I think the, the governor of Utah vetoed that, right? Yeah. And I mean, to me, it's like, what do you think is motivating people to become so, I don't know, like just wound up in a, in a really hateful way uh, to the point where they're like willing to create legislation to bully one minor, which is amazing to me. Right. So I, I think transports in particular is one of the, the main, particularly I think transports is one of the easiest targets for them to go after because one of the one of the hardest things about opposing rights is that it's hard to make that argument and be effective and persuasive saying that their rights they shouldn't have rights you know as relating to, to trans people trans people shouldn't have rights and it's like well why do you care so much like how does this affect you well one of the ways that they're able to make a convincing argument is saying that well if we give them rights they're taking something away that they make it very uh, they they import essentially what are um they they basically create a scarcity mindset that giving someone else rights is taking something from you and so sports are particularly perfect for that because sports are a zero-sum game and so they say well if a trans person wins that means you know a cis person loses and we can't have that even though trans people are just such a small like fraction of the population like trans people have been able to compete in the Olympics for years. And this was like the first time that a trans athlete had, had competed. Um, and, you know, there's some really good history on, on like just how trying to define women in sports has been an ongoing problem for over a century. Right. Like it used to like intersex women were banned for the longest time because they didn't realize the difference between like XX and XY or like XY intersex women who have like various um, differences that all that, affected their sexual development. Um, and so that was the easiest attack, right? So we really saw it with the with the sports bills. But then beyond that, I think what really accelerated this particularly was the don't say gay bill in Florida. Uh, around that, we saw this just complete change in rhetoric that is just absolutely frightening. Um, you know, when I was on Twitter, like in February, I started seeing like the, the rising use of this term groomer. And this was something I had seen on gender criticals, like hate forums. I had seen on like alt-right websites. I had seen like kind of on the fringes of the dark web. I had not seen like major people on Twitter really using it in that kind of way. And then all of a sudden, right at the beginning of March, we saw Christina Pushaw, the press secretary for Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, start labeling the Don't Say Gay bill as a anti-grooming bill. And this was in coordination, which which was a term kind of picked up from Libs of TikTok, because Libs of TikTok started using this heavily in February and got a lot of push with it. And so very quickly, you started to see the conflation of LGBTQ people or even talking about LGBTQ people with um, in the context of schools as being grooming or pedophilic behavior. Like they're trying to basically conflate LGBT people with pedophiles, which is not a new attack. This is something we've heard 
for ages. This is like Anita Bryant stuff from like 1977. And, and yeah. Yeah, they tried to, I, I remember, uh, well, I wasn't alive yet, but um, there was a, a big movement to ban gay teachers from school because, uh, you know, like back when, when Harvey Milk was in action, um, you know, just conflating being gay with being a pedophile. And I mean, to me, it's just like, it's not surprising that this is happening, but it is surprising to me. Maybe it shouldn't be to the extent that it's working because as you noted, we have already kind of been through this argument as a society and, you know, in the event of, I don't think that, I mean, at least until, you know, maybe the past year, I, I don't think that even most Republicans believed that gay people are pedophiles. That, that that seemed to me to have gone away quite some time ago, you know? Yeah, I think it really, it really uh, highlights part of the issues with algorithmic amplification on social media, which is something I, I, I study and look at. Uh, but it particularly how quickly this spreads, right? Like, so it had been used in isolated circumstances, but not in this kind of concerted way until really like James Lindsay lives of TikTok. I mean, like Jack Posobiec and some folks uh, like on the kind of fringe alt-right really started using it heavily. But I think lives of TikTok was kind of the epicenter for this. And just how quickly it goes from this, anon at the time, anonymous account, just becoming an anti-trans hate account, quickly spreading to a press secretary for the governor of Florida to then all of the right-wing echo, echo chamber, right? You had Ben Shapiro and Matt Walsh and like all these folks from the Daily Wire. And like you have basically all of these right-wing provocateurs like just repeating it. And then all of a sudden it's on Fox News. It's on Laura Ingram. It's on Tucker Carlson. It's on all this. Within a span of just a few weeks. And like that just rapid just quick rise of this rhetoric is just, it's terrifying how quickly that happened. One of the things that seems like notable to me is like a lot of these figures, you know, thinking about the kind of right wing media sphere, they pretend that they don't hate all trans people. Like I'm thinking about Blair White in particular and like, you know, like, um, Ben Shapiro, Alex Jones, they're hanging out with her. And, you know, I don't know about Ben Shapiro specifically, but I've heard other right-wing media fig figures kind of say stuff like, you know, basically imply that there, there's like an okay kind of trans person and that they're just really against the bad kind of trans person. Can, can you talk a little about that and these weird uh, rhetorical rhetorical distinctions they're trying to make and, and what kind of function these intend to serve. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it, it's a classic example of using a tokenized minority to harm the broader group, right? They're like, oh, what we're saying isn't bad because my trans friend says it's okay, or she's saying it too. So this is obviously okay. And there's a lot of dynamics behind that, right? There's a whole ecosystem of in the right wing, where if you are t a token minority and you speak against basically everything that ev your your group believes and uh, in terms of their rights or um, beliefs, 
basically like you get tokenized and you get a, you get a speaking gig and you get like on Tucker Carlson, you get on all these shows like Candace Owens. I, Candace Owens, I think, is like a perfect example of this. Uh, Caitlyn Jenner, uh, Blair White a, as well. And so it's like, oh, well, we can't be transphobic. We have this trans person saying this. And I think this is a tactic that has been used. It's a classic kind of colonialist tactic. It's it's divide and conquer. Right. So um, you highlight someone like Blair White, who, you know, is saying like is coming out against all these like gender or is coming out in support of like the bans on gender affirming care for minors. And she and like on Joe Rogan, she's like, I knew I was trans when I was five and she like transitioned, I believe I like, got 20. So it's just, you know, it's I think there's a lot of self-loathing and just a lot of like, I mean, there, there are trans people that are going to be conservative, right? It's just it's it's going to happen. But then they realize that the price of acceptance in their party is to trash everyone that shares their identity. And this is not an uncommon tactic, right? Like this is, we've seen this on the attacks on people of color for centuries, right? Any new group to the United States, like the Irish or Italians, they weren't considered white. They were considered separate from, from the kind of classic wasp whiteness, right? But the price of whiteness for them was to oppress black people in this country, right? So we saw the Irish and the Italians quickly become police officers and quickly become like linchpins of uh, law enforcement. And so they had, they attacked black folks and newer immigrants as the price of their whiteness and, and the protection that they get from that. And so it's this the same kind of dynamic. It's like, oh, well, if you want to have this and be considered part of the in group, you have to basically jettison anyone else. And so that's the same kind of thing with, with Blair White. And it's like, oh, I'm one of the okay trans people. It's like a pick me attitude. It's the activists that have gone too far. And it's, and when you're talking about activists, it's like, you're talking about like 13 year old trans girls going to their state legislator, asking them not to ban their healthcare. Like, yeah, that's what we're yeah, talking about. This- there is this idea that I have seen these conservative figures um, echo again and again that, you know, th- they're against um, trans activists and really like anything that could be uh, criticized about the excesses of wokeness, which, you know, there's a grain of truth. There are people who and there are people that sometimes are coming at people in bad faith, you know, I definitely see it in the left, like people sort of taking each other's takes and, you know, reading it in the worst ways. I mean, there is, there is something to be said, but these people are just, I think, like exploiting that so deeply and also like pinning all the blame for this, you know, like, this kind of climate where some people, mostly bad people feel like they can't say stuff. And even some good people feel like a little bit worried about, you know, backlash if they express an opinion or whatever. I don't know. It it seems like they're kind of going after these two things sort of like hands in hand that, you know, every uh, person who supports trans rights is also somebody who would, um, you know, attempt to, uh, cancel you if you, you know, uh, 
I don't know what, what, whatever ridiculous examples these people have of things that don't actually really happen in real life, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's an example of extremely online culture, right? So there's definitely like groups that, you know, they, they, they basically stay in such an in-group all the time. And then like anyone says anything that they, they, they disagree with, they like, they immediately get attacked. And, and, you know, I think we need to have a little bit more grace and understanding, especially online and stop reading everything in, in the worst way possible. Um, but that doesn't mean like there, there aren't like actual like bad actors, particularly on the right that are like trolling and, and engaging in bad faith tactics. And so I think like, you know, if somebody says something like, I, I think the perfect example of this was the Kendrick Lamar uh, song that came out last week uh, on Tea Diaries. Um, I, I, like, I just really think this is like the perfect example of this exact like conversation we had in the trans community. Have you I actually missed the whole discourse about that. So give me a primer. Yeah. yeah. So, so Kendrick Lamar wrote this song called Auntie Diaries about his, his trans uncle um, and his trans cousin. And it used the F-bomb a few times. And it was very written in his point of view at the time, right? It was trying to show how he grew up with this and how ingrained the homophobia and transphobia was but like how he noticed that it was wrong. Like it wasn't, but he just didn't know any better. And he, like he says that in the song. And like, if you read the lyrics and really read it, that mindset, like it's really in that way. But I think a lot of people just immediately were like, oh, he shouldn't have dropped the F-bomb at all. That's not his word to say, which like his last lyric on the song is, um, I'll say the F word with you if you let a white girl say the N word. And it was like, he was trying to say like, this is not okay, you shouldn't say this. And like, that was the message of the song. And like, he took a little license to say it. But the the problem is, I think a lot of people don't understand, like, especially I think like some white trans folks and others, like, like Kendrick Lamar is not talking to trans folks in that, in that song. He really isn't. Like I grew up in a Latinx household. that was like, my parents weren't homophobic in that sense, but a lot of my extended family were viciously homophobic. And I had gay cousins that were really bullied and just, just, it was, it was bad. Um, and, and I see this song and I, I see that like reaching out to those people that will listen to Kendrick Lamar talking to them and like subtly tell them like, this is not okay. Like this is, this harmed my family members. And like in that casual way that it happens, right? Like at parties. And, but like, there was just this vicious debate, like saying like Kendrick Lamar is just trying to cash in as a cis man and like all this stuff. And I'm like, realize like in the context of the hip hop world, like it's very common to out, other rappers that have sex with trans women and try to humiliate them in that way. And like, that's a way of, that's a form of transphobia for like Kendrick Lamar to talk about this in this way. I was like, it's huge. And like, in my experience as a Latinx person coming from like, you know, like a, a broader extended family that has a lot of homophobia, like it spoke to me and like really spoke to my experience with homophobia in my family and like how it was experienced and like how it was perpetuated and how to speak to these folks that aren't necessarily going to be receptive to trans people telling them this. And I thought it was a really fantastic and powerful song, but there was like a very teardown thing. So I think like that's a perfect example, right? Like there's this nuanced artistic thing and like, it's hard to talk about this on 240 characters on Twitter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but you know, to get to, to the broader question is, is really, they they really do take like the worst excesses like they'll they'll take like the like the reactions to the Kendrick Lamar song they'll say like trans activists have gone too far and it's just like these small anonymous accounts right like they try to take the worst example and then pin it to the group which is a constant tactic that they do right um 
and so I think that that's a particular issue. And they, they talk about like all these activists and this and that. And it's like, I think it's just, it's, it's a byproduct of our extremely online culture, our lack of empathy, the way that we pile on on social media and the, the lack of willingness to give people grace, um, especially when things are decontextualized. Yeah, I, there, you know, there always is, there, there's always going to be some person with like 13 followers online who comes up with a, a whack take. And, oh man, I remember like a few months ago, they did that thing where they were trying to paint it as like every trans person was mad that Adele had said the word woman. And it's like, no, no one is, <laughs> I think they found one tweet from one extremely low follower account that, that said something about it. I, I don't even remember what it was, but it, I don't know. Yeah. It, it, it's yeah. And that that's, that's how propaganda works, right? They, they took like, like, I, I feel like, in general, like that kind of tweet trolling where they just kind of go through tweets to find like one specific thing to just invent to get mad at. Like, it's like, yeah, it's like literally like you're literally looking for reasons to get pissed off because you're literally looking at you. You would have to be doing a search on Twitter for like Adele's name, like after that and like all of this stuff. And they found like, I think like one or two accounts. And one of them was actually a satire account. I, I put satire in qu air quotes. Uh, because it was actually a turf account. It was actually a turf account, like make like trying to act all offended that Adele said woman. Um, I'd like to mock trans people, but then that got cited as like trans people being mad about Adele. And like the other one was a gay man who like I think just probably meant well, but just like did not <laughs> really uh, uh, word his tweet right. And you know, and so. Um, they took the Daily Mail took that and all these like and then all of a sudden you know people don't read the story and they don't check the tweets so they just read the headlines and all of a sudden it was trans people are mad about Adele it's like every trans person I know is like fine with what she said <laughs> like yeah it's not I I don't know it, it it's, yeah I mean I think just like you were saying there's just there's just an extremely bad faith effort to you know, I act like one person who said one thing. I mean, like, you can just, you can find it. Like, I guarantee that if you looked right now that, you know, you could easily find mm, 75 or more people who believe that, like, you know, aliens have visited us recently. <laughs> you know, you can always find somebody saying something weird, you know? Um so I want to kind of tie this back for a second to the broader rise of uh, Christofascism and gender policing by the state. You know, I think that um, a lot of cis women are experiencing this in, an, in a sort of renewed way right now with the uh, fall of Roe and you know, just even like yesterday, Oklahoma passed this bill. It might not be yesterday by the time this airs, but Oklahoma passed this bill uh, banning all abortion. I think there's there's case, there's exceptions for rape or incest if you file a police report, um, but at the point of fertilization. So there's even questions about how that will impact, IVF. you know, IVF, yeah. certain forms of birth control. It's just, it's absolutely wacko. And to me... You know, I think that there is this um, 
debate some some by uh, bad faith actors and some by genuinely concerned people of like how we know that like a lot of these bills are rooted in misogyny they are attacks on women and also women are not the only people that need access to reproductive care um i what are your thoughts about how to kind of like be inclusive in a way that doesn't necessarily discount the fact that a lot of these bills are motivated by a deep hatred of women you know right i i mean i think all of this is like as you said about crypto fascism i think this is all tied into this like neo-reactionary movement to basically move or, or use this power of the state to force everyone to go back to like traditional family structures uh, and, and basically move in a, a liberal direction where basically, you know, they do what they think is best and whether you like it or not. And so, you know, I, I think like right now the most salient point is is the overturning of Roe, right? And, and I think there's a very right to be concerned because this is just going to affect so many women, so many pregnant people. Um, so like just so many there's so many people are going to be deeply affected by this, and it's going to cause such havoc. People are going to be imprisoned for seeking abortions. There's going to be people in prison just for having a miscarriage. It's it's really dystopian stuff. But I really want to tie this like this isn't just about reproductive care or, or reproductive access or abortion access. Like this is broadly an attack on bodily autonomy. Like this is yes, this is seeking to eliminate the concept of bodily autonomy and privacy in particular from the constitution so that the state has direct control. And the way that we know this is they're gunning for Griswold v. Connecticut, which is the case that legal uh, that said bans on contraception for married women uh, were unconstitutional. And it was the first kind of major case decided that under this like quote unquote penumbra of rights that there is this right to privacy when you read the 14th amendment um uh, due uh, due process clause and that was the first one and that built up then they subsequently got rid of bans on contraception for single women and then the next year in 1973 they uh made a constitutional right to abortion under due process rights but Substance due process was such a, uh, a topic of conversation by Republican senators during Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson's confirmation hearing. So yeah. Like uh, Cornyn, right? And so like this idea of substance due process underlies gay marriage, uh, basic right to contraception, abortion, uh, even the right to marriage at all, inter, uh, interracial marriage, um, all of these things that we we take inherently as rights uh, are are literally they're they're gunning for them. They want to take them all and basically dictate and say that you know you have no autonomy over your reproductive system, you have no autonomy over your gender, you have no autonomy over who you love and who you marry. Like you're gonna do what we say, we know it's best for you. And there's 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 laying the groundwork here at Harvard. Like there's this professor uh, professor. Uh, um, uh, uh, oh my gosh, I always remember his name because his middle name is Comstock, which is like, it's so on the nose, right? If you know what the Comstock yeah. laws are. Uh, but uh, 
Professor Adrian Vermeule, uh, he is like laying out this constitution or common good constitutionalism that lays a legal framework for this kind of view, right? It, 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 if you're looking for the author of the Constitution of Gilead, like he'd be your guy. And what is that? What is that framework broadly? Sorry, what? Like what argument? Oh, I just like, like broadly, what is that framework? What arguments are these people planning on making legally? And how can we expect this to show up in the conservative legal movement in the next few years? Yeah, I mean, and it, it is going to show up because he has the uh, Professor Vermeule has a very, you know, close connection with the Federalist Society. And this has become especially with originalism. So like, there's the concept of originalism, which is like, looking at the original meaning of, of laws and like, Scalia and Alito originalists. But I think what they saw was like the failure of originalism around gay marriage and then um, like for them to stop gay marriage. And then ultimately in 2020, when they found like Gorsuch wrote the opinion that found that civil rights laws protect trans people and uh, LGBTQ people in general, like they really, there was this kind of blowback. And so now they're like, okay, how do we get past originalism? Which is like trying to have a thin veneer of like, no, this is actually reasoned legal thinking. Whereas like common good constitutionalism is like, it's the ends justify the means. Like it's, there is no coherent principle other than we think we know it's best, right? Like it, it is like, the first thing is like, how do you define good, right? Well, it, what they think is, is like a return to the traditional family and the return to traditional sexual mores and all, all these things. And basically the best way to describe it is a Latin American style, like philosophy, right? In terms of con socially conservative and liberally uh, or fiscally liberal. So they believe like the state should be more active in supporting unions and supporting labor and supporting people through through kind of more socialist means. So on that end, they try to attract people, but they're going to jettison that part. They just, the, the people that are attracted to common good constitutions are only attracted to the like, no, we want social conservatism. Uh, we don't care about that, like feel good, like, you know, social programs kind of stuff. Um, and so it's, it's a recipe for fascism. Yeah. I mean, I am, I am concerned about this, new thread on the right that, you know, is uh, using pro-worker rhetoric, if not almost never supporting actual pro-worker policies. Like, you know, but th these folks that are backed by Peter Thiel in many cases, like J.D. Vance, and even some people on the, the socialist left, which I consider myself a part of, are, uh, are kind of falling for it and have, um, you know, sort of accepted the in my opinion, very, very wrong premise that um, being trans is some kind of bourgeois ideology and, you know, that it's like just this, you know, sort of symbol of decadence or, you know. That's the perfect word. That's what they always use is decadence. Yeah, to me, it's just really like, how can you call yourself even a, a nominal leftist and be like, you know, think that, um, yeah, I don't know. Just, yeah. I mean, it, uh, there is, um, I, th I heard once Adolf Reed make this point on a podcast that the organization with the largest number of trans members is the AFL-CIO. And, 
you know, I think that it, it's pretty clear to me that um, being able to receive the medical care you need, the, uh, you know, have a safe environment to, to work, um, you know, to not be harassed by the police state. These are all issues that certainly materially impact people often in ways that a lot of us probably can't even accurately imagine, you know? Yeah. I I mean, I think what you're describing in general is, is really what the right wing has been setting out to do is to, to create this kind of, because the, the counter to kind of the more Marxist ideal of class struggle and class solidarity is this kind of racial struggle and racial solidarity. So you start getting into that kind of like very white supremacist, like white nationalist thinking and like, they co-opt a lot of the class struggle ideas, but give it a racial flavor. And so that's why you have groups like, you know, the traditionalist working workers party, which is like a neo-Nazi group, right? Like they, they try to harness this stuff, but it's really built around the idea of uh, like race consciousness and race solidarity. And so basically like it is just, it's just racism, right? It's, it's fascism and, and, but that's how they build it, but they co-opt a lot of the language. Whereas like, it's inherently it's like it already starts with this like division that cuts across any classes right and it tries to divide and conquer whereas like when you have the broader idea of of labor organizing and class solidarity like anyone everyone is a worker right like we we, you know except for for the billionaires and and the folks in, in that class like like we all are working and struggling to survive and you can build solidarity in that way and build real power and i think really the future that we have is making sure that we build strong labor movements. And I've been so heartened by the wins, the incredible wins at Amazon in Staten Island, the Starbucks unions that are popping up everywhere, uh, just the mass amount of unionization, because it's no surprise that one of the the long running projects of the conservative movement here in the United States has been to weaken and undermine unions. It's been a 70 year project since they knew that the labor movement basically helped FDR and the New Deal happen. Right. Like when you have that broad consensus among people of different races, different genders, different religions, like all of those coming together under this idea of like class solidarity, it is a powerful threat to the people in power. And so they've been trying to undermine labor. And I think labor organizing is, is one of the paths forward to how we build um, uh, power and, and take it back from these fascists. Yeah, I would go so far to say is it's it's probably... I mean, I can't think of another plan that is likely to have enough juice to work. Like there's, you know, I, I definitely think that there's like a big place for direct actions. But in terms of like having a government that is in any way accountable to the people that in any way, you know, uh, protects people's rights. When we have these courts that are just, you know, stacked with uh people who have full, uh, you know, theocracy, um, just a horrible ideology, you know, from George W. Bush and from Trump. And I mean, we really need a labor movement to push back. And that's where, you know, I'll start to critique liberals because, you know, I think that there is this idea that, you know, people kind of promote, like, you know, just vote. All we can do is vote. I'm not saying don't vote, definitely vote. Like to me, anybody, that is saying that there's no difference uh, between the 
Democrats and Republicans. Well, for one thing, you know, that person probably doesn't know any trans people because there's there's a pretty big difference, I would say, there and on a number of other issues. But it's like, I don't know. I, I, I think it's just becoming more and more obvious and, and on a large scale with Roe versus Wade um, that voting alone is, n- is not going to be enough because a lot of these things aren't even things that we can vote for. You yeah. know, like we can't vote out the Supreme Court. Well, I think it's, it's hard to tell people that like our chance to vote was in 2016, right? Like 80,000 votes set us down this path because if, if, if we, Hillary Clinton got 80,000 more votes in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, um, and, uh, I feel like it was the, one of the other States or Michigan, uh, she would have been president and we wouldn't, this wouldn't be happening. Right. So that's like really hard. Right. And in the moment the inflamed passions, like I can't even tell you, it was like, I still remember the heat of the 2016 race, like the, the, the amount of just like online toxicity around it and just promoting the idea, this nihilistic idea of like, your vote doesn't matter. It's all rigged. Both sides are the same. Like that allowed someone like Trump to win. And so it's like hard to say that it's like, we, we've, we fucked up. We missed a huge opportunity to ensure like these, these things. And like Hillary was saying it, like they were pulling out, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Hillary Clinton. I really don't like her, but like, you have to understand I'm a, I'm a very pragmatic and practical person. And like, when one side is like this fascist white nationalist ideology, like, yeah, I'd crawl through glass, broken glass to, to, to vote for Hillary Clinton. And so, um, you know, and I know there's a broader leftist critique of like, she's an imperialist and all this stuff. And it's like, I understand that, but like, it's harm reduction folks. Like we got to do the best we can here. Like, I'll- yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely a harm reduction voter. And I also think that like, you know, the, um, like people who are are very like I'm going to demonstrate my political power by not voting. Well, in my opinion, that's really the same uh, diseased way of thinking that says that you're going to uh, demonstrate, you know, all your political power by voting. You know what I mean? Like it completely discounts like the other uh, methods that we have of of making change. You know, and so I guess, you know, to to close off here. Um, you know, in terms of like, you know, for people who are really concerned about this horrible, horrible wave of legislation and, you know, court decisions, like what, what can people concretely do? I mean, in the immediacy of the moment, a lot of people aren't plugged in to these orgs or these movements. So it's, it's hard to know what to do. It it feels very hopeless. Um, and like, we're, we're kind of powerless, but we, we really aren't. They, that's the way that's what they want us to make that's how they want us to feel like powerless so we just accept and roll over um you know the first thing like if you have money like that is huge right like we can engage in mutual aid like we can get involved in local mutual aid orgs uh we can get connected in those ways you can donate to trans-led orgs like trans education network of texas or tent uh, which has been doing phenomenal work fighting against governor abbott and their, their anti-trans policies campaign for southern equality who's doing amazing work on the ground across the South, uh, fighting these anti-trans laws. Um, and so that that's one way, but we have to understand, like this is an, in, we have to build an intersectional movement because this is an intersectional attack on all of us, right? So we need to understand the attack on abortion rights is, attack on, is an attack on trans rights, an attack on LGBTQ rights is an attack on women's rights. And it's an attack on the, the civil rights of, of black folks in this country as well. Like we have to build 
a big coalition and realize that this this struggle is the same and that we're all going to lose if we don't unite and fight back against this because it, you know it, it's it's really just a broader struggle that we all share like some of us have been at the brunt getting the brunt of this trans folks uh black women um particularly with with maternal mortality rates like and access to abortion is just absolutely abysmal like there, yes like some of us have been disparately affected but we have to understand like we have to come together and fight this because if we don't if we stayed fractured and despondent they're gonna win well i i think that that's as optimistic of a note as we probably can close it on thank you so much for coming on the show alejandra this was a really great conversation and uh to our listeners who would like to follow you online where can they do that yeah, you can follow me on Twitter um, or Instagram or any of my my handle is Esquire, E-S-Q-U-E-E-R. It's a portmanteau of, of Esquire and Queer um, underscore. And uh, you can also listen to my podcast, Queering the Law, where we, we talk in depth about a lot of these issues um, and a lot of the LG- issues of LGBT people in the law. And Lyra is the other host of that show, right? Yes, Lyra yeah, is she's, my co-host. she's a... She- She's a fave on Reply, guys. So go check that podcast out. And thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Reply, guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare, Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, OHJuliaTweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. walking that ribbon of highway I saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley this land was made for you and me this land is your land this land is your land